I am not given to hyperbole, so I mean this. I don't think I've ever been more excited to to do this show. It's a lot of fun stuff today. We're going to start with how we can read the Bible more effectively. We'll do that and a lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Indeed, Life and Listener has filled us with a really good show this week. So kudos to you, the listener. For example, Adam, who sent in a very interesting uh, a very a very interesting story about something out there called the AND campaign I want to cover in the second segment. I had a really interesting uh, interaction on social media regarding how we educate our kids, homeschool, public school, all that stuff that I want to talk about. I had another social media interaction that we're going to start with re- regarding some biblical and theological matters. And if we have time before we get into sports, I just finished, it's such a weird sentence for me, I just finished an eight-part Dolly Parton podcast series, like a podcast about Dolly Parton and her life. And it was excellent. But there's some audio from it I'd like to play for you because I think it is important. We're going to try to get to all of it and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. But first, my name is indeed Corey Truax. I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood meets at 1030 Sunday mornings in Greenville. And you, yes, you are invited. We are dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk here on the Corey Truax Show. And I hope this is what we can give you right now in the realm of theology. Starting here. I shared on Facebook... A video from Southern Seminary. I love some Southern Seminary. That's Al Mohler's seminary. If you don't listen to Al Mohler, you should. He's brilliant. Regarding one part of Revelation, the book of Revelation. And I didn't get a lot of comment responses, but I got more direct message private responses than I expected that were not agreeable. And so I started digging into some of the other parts of the internet especially on YouTube, that really think about this stuff, that really concentrate on the book of Revelation and uh, and where we fit in the eschaton, the es- eschatology, how things end. And I, I have some reactions to what I found. So let me give some preamble first really quickly. One, I, I said recently when we were talking about matters of creation and in Genesis, I, I get troubled by the fact that it does seem in the Christian faith we are very concerned, like we're willing to part ways with each other over how things began and over how things end. So it's very important to us that we, people agree on creation and on the end of all things. And there's a lot less care given to how uh, what, what the theology is of everything else in between. And so I want to play for you some audio that I think illustrates how we should interact around these things. Uh, because Revelation is important. Studying in times is important. There's actually part of the, the book of Revelation says... The, the people who ruminate on this and understand it, there's a, there's a blessing for them. And so I would never diminish the importance of studying these things, but the attitude with which we interact with each other as believers, we, that might need some work. And so uh, R.C. Sproul, who is now passed, he had a question asked to him at a conference regarding how he and John MacArthur got along when they disagreed, because John MacArthur is a dispensationalist and he thinks certain things about... Israel and end of times that R.C. Sproul didn't think. And they are fast friends and were faithful uh, faithful ministers to one another. And so uh, how 
were they able, with these really significant different theological settings, how are they able to get along well? I want to play that for you now from R.C. Sproul. How do we reconcile the different views that we have, like on baptism? That's what I said. Oh, so far, we haven't been able to do that. (laughs) (laughs) The only way that can happen (laughs) is if one or all of us change our position on the thing. And so I'm willing to wait. (laughs) (laughs) So are my brothers over here. But, uh, you know, the, the the issues that are before the church in the 21st century touch the very heart of the gospel and the very essence of the Christian faith. And uh, for me to be able to find men who are as valiant and as clear and articulate and and brave as these guys are on the core issues of of the Reformed faith, uh, the the areas where we disagree, though all disagreements are significant and important, but the other matters so far outweigh these, in my opinion, that uh, I certainly don't have any problem standing side by side. I, these are the guys I want in my foxhole when the shooting starts. I do. I just love that attitude. And so the attitude with which we come to discussions about theological systems and specifically Revelation end of times, let's do that with a bunch of charity and grace for each other. So with that preamble, here we go. Let's see if I can maintain that, that charity and, and be... Because, uh, you know, you balance these things on a show where you want to be entertaining and engaging, but also behave yourself, right, and be, be a person of integrity. So here's, uh, here's the thing on Revelation. Um, I, I get a little annoyed with one of the responses that I got. So uh, the, the, the video post about Revelation was about the 144,000, there's mentioned 144,000 Jews who will be rescued in a very specific way in the end of time. And I, I, I think that that is symbolic of something. I think if you start thinking about all the different 12s, 12 tribes of Israel, uh, that, that we, we get to a, a very specific thing when you have 12 times 12, it's 144, the 144,000. I, I don't want to get into all of it right now. My point there being is, I don't think that's a particularly literal thing, that it's symbolic of something. And one of the responses I got was, well, I think it means what it says. I believe John meant what he wrote, and the book means what it says. As charitable as I can, no, you don't. It's, uh, we can disagree on dispensationalism and, 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 covenant, and covenants and reform theology and end of times, but let's also agree when your arguments are bad. And so when someone says, well, I believe the book just means what it says. Well, no, you don't. You don't actually believe a beast comes out of the sea. You don't believe that. I have heard many of the, this particular theological group think that that is a reinvigorated Roman Empire. It's going to be some world empire. So you don't actually think it's a beast that came out of a sea. You think it's a government. You don't actually think it's a lamb on the throne. It says lamb, but you know it's Jesus. Right? There's a lot of, uh, at the beginning of the book, one of the first three chapters, we're talking about the seven churches, and you, the lampstand might be removed. You don't actually think it's a lampstand, that there's an actual light that the church has lit, and Jesus is going to snuff it out. That's not what you think. So we all agree that there's some symbolic language in it, and then we use the interpretive methods that we have to, to figure out what all that stuff is. I mean, you, it goes so far when you get into some folks like John Hagee that 
they will surmise and theorize that John didn't know what he was seeing in these visions of the, of the future, so he said locusts, but he meant helicopters or something. And so, like, there's, there's obviously a lot of language in Revelation that is figurative and symbolic, and we all agree on that. And th- listen, that doesn't invalidate the entire argument about Revelation. If, if you have a particular view of Revelation that I don't, th- th- the fact that this one bad argument is out there doesn't invalidate your position. I might be 100% wrong about how I view the end of, th- end of time, and you might be totally right. But that particular argument, I think the book means what it says. Well, no, you don't. And that, that is the particular argument that we need to stop using, and it is, it's irksome to me. And so it doesn't invalidate all of the argument about Revelation, but that one argument is bad. The illustration I would give here is a sports one. I get annoyed with the uh, Tom Brady people who are six championships. He won six championships, so he's the best. Um. Brad Johnson won a championship. So did Trent Dilfer. Dan Marino won none. Do you think Trent Dilfer and Brad Johnson are better than Dan Marino? Well, of course you don't. So your your argument is invalid. The championship argument doesn't work. Take it to my more my era. Troy Aikman has three Super Bowl uh, championships. Brett Favre has one and Steve Young has one. Steve Young and Brett Favre are inarguably better than Troy Aikman. So your argument is invalid. Now, there's other arguments to make, but that argument is not a valid one. And so it doesn't invalidate the whole thing, but that's something that needs to quit getting said. Now, I started taking me down a rabbit trail. I started going down this uh, rabbit trail on some dispensational YouTube channels. That's a, By the way, dispensationalism is a, it is a theological system that interprets biblical history that God dealt with peoples and deals with Israel uh, very differently throughout time. Uh, And I can't give any more time to that right now. Maybe we'll do an entire episode on that later. And out on Twitter and the social media sites, these guys have a a particular hashtag they're using that, I don't know why it annoyed me so much, but like if you're wanting to go find some dispensational content, preaching and articles, the big hashtag being used right now is old paths. Hashtag old paths. As in, this is the this is good old time religion. And something deep in me always kicks against those things. I, I kick against both. I kick against, I just like to walk the old paths. I also kick against, we found something new. Look at the new thing we found. And new is good. And I always stand there and go, uh, gentlemen, ladies, I don't want old paths. I don't want new paths. I want the right paths. Whatever one happens to be the correct one, that's the one I want. If it's old, okay. If it's new, that's fine too. But there is a group of people in the theological world that value just oldness. That's how my granddaddy did it. Well, your granddaddy might have been wrong. So let's stop evaluating things based on tradition and sort of evaluating everything by right and wrong. And you know where you find all the right and the wrong? In the Bible. One last thing on this. If, if you're not really into this theology, I do think it's important to do some study on it. I might have somebody on the show, and we'll talk this thing through. But one of the major interpretive motifs, interpretive problems that we run into is, in, in dispensationalism, they believe that God deals with people like me, a non-Jew, 
very differently than he deals with the Jews. And that there's, there is still coming a time uh, that ethnic Jews have a, have a whole different eschaton, a whole different end than everybody else, at least in the sequence of things. And so I just want to give you why I don't think that. Again, I could be wrong. That's fine. And I want to be, I want to be like R.C. Sproul that says, oh, but we're still here together on the gospel and seeing Jesus, the, 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 the message of Jesus go to the world. Oh, you don't have to agree with me on this. I, I, I think it's important, but sheesh, we got a bigger thing to care about than this. And so I can be in partnership and in fellowship with anybody who doesn't think this, but just so you know why I don't lean dispensational, it's also one of the reasons I'm, I'm not as strident about America supporting Israel, because that country over there right now, I, I don't interpret at all to, to be God's people. Actually, if you don't know, Israel is one of the most godless places in the world. There's plenty of religious people. Its its atheist rate is very high. It beat us all to all the homosexual stuff. Like, Israel's a very secular place. If you go to Jerusalem, it's very religious. Tel Aviv is a very secular place. And so uh, when we interpret the world, I don't see that n- nation of Israel that's there over there now to be the one God established. So uh, let me just give you why. Why I, I don't think God deals with Israel and then us differently. That, that God doesn't have a... I don't believe God looks at me with a different affection than he does a, a believing Jew or an unbelieving Jew. Because that's, that would be a position of the dispensationalist. That God has an affection for you, the believer. He has an entirely different affection for the ethnic Jew walking around the world right now who is a pagan, a pagan ethnic Jew because of his ethnicity. So let me give you why, and we'll move on. I could, I really would need a good hour to build it. I'm going to give you the easiest way there. Galatians 3. I want to read to you two things from Galatians 3. The first one will be, da, 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 I can't, now I can't find it. I pulled it up in my Bible. Um, believe God. I'm, I'm going to start with verse 7. Uh, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So sons of faith, though that's me. If you're a believer, that's you. You've come to faith in Jesus. Well, Paul says here, you're the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are Israel. You're, you're God's people. You're God's chosen people. Uh, and, and the scripture for seeing, this I'm going back to the Bible now, verse 8 in Galatians 3. And the scripture for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul is making an is drawing an equivalency between those who are of faith and those who were ethnic Jews at the beginning. The last part I want to do is verse 15 in the same chapter, Galatians 3, verse 15. Paul writes, To give an, uh, an example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham, so a promise to be a people, to, be, to have a land. Uh, those promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And so here's now Paul saying, the promise, all that promise and stuff was made to Abraham was not to an ethnic people. It was those who would be in Christ. And the whole purpose of Israel is to bring us Christ, because in Christ, all the people of God of every tribe, tongue, and nation come together. That's my position. I understand. If you don't have it, that's okay. 
We can also love each other and be charitable to each other. When we come back, I want to move on from this before I get in trouble. I want to talk about some schooling choices that parents make. And then uh, Adam wrote in with a very good question on a topic about something out there called the AND campaign. We'll do that when you return for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Do me this grand favor and connect the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my name, Corey Truax. I am the only one. It's a super weird name. You can follow along throughout the week, and you can also do what uh, one of your fellow listeners has done. I'm going to get to that in a minute. You can send me things to cover on the show, uh, and so do that on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also, you can get to the show at CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com. You can contact me there. Before we get into that listener email from Adam, I want to talk about another topic. Uh, it was, this actually comes from social media, but it's also my little sister, my younger sister. I was on Facebook, and I I liked uh, a meme, and that meme was pretty anti-public school. It was an anti-public school meme, and I'm not anti-public school. I th- I thought it was a funny meme, and I I know I don't think the person's heart was super like re- really minted. I think they were had some hyperbole, and she saw that I liked it, and. I think she did a great thing. I think we should, we all need people in our life like this. She called me out. She said, "Hey, why uh, why would you like a meme that was so mean to public school?" And as I thought through that, it didn't take me long to recognize, yeah, that's this is not good behavior. I mean, there are teachers I know personally teaching in public schools. They do a really good job and. It also violates something I've said on the show before. So I just want to go back over this very quickly. I'm talking, give me five minutes or less to just talk about uh, an important topic. Uh, but because it's a retread, something I've talked about before, I don't want to spend too much time. So I am a, a big anti what I call the mommy wars. I'm, I, I can't stand the mommy wars. I can't stand the reality that there's women who uh, judge each other hardcore for how uh, they feed their kids what they feed them. If they feed them in uh, GMO stuff, and uh, if they use cloth diapers versus the disposable ones, and then how they educate the kid, and it's it's become a thing where uh, it's how some moms feel good about themselves. They find identity, and I don't parent my kids like those people. I'm a different kind of person, and so they find some kind of uh, value in, in in homeschooling or in Christian schooling or in public schooling for that matter, and so I. I can't stand that because every kid is different. Every kid is served differently uh, and, and needs different things. There's, a, there's situations in, 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 in every family where one kid would do great homeschooling and one would not, and another kid would do great in public school and one would not, and one kid would do great in a, a private or Christian school setting and one would not. And that's for every parent to think deeply about and to think deeply about every year because kids change over time. So uh, I, what I'm... What I'm very much in favor of, I'm in favor of educating your kids. That's my position. My position is educate your kids. Work hard Work hard on that. Put some effort into it. My, my other admonition is for parents to think about it. Uh, where we run into a problem, I think, with some public schooling and Christian parents is it becomes a default setting. So here we are, we're in the we're in the United States, and vast majority of families send their kids to public school. And I think a lot of Christian families infected by the world just never thought about it. 
They just did what everyone else did because everyone else is doing it. And that's the problem. The problem you run into is a, a default setting, letting, letting the world's default setting be our own. Whereas the Christian parent and the Christian family, we evaluate. We know that there's um, we, we know that we know there's options. We want to we want to parent our kids so well that we're thinking about it deeply in every decision. And so uh, I shouldn't have liked an anti-public school thing because here's another thing I have found working in higher education. There are some morally upstanding, spiritually mature kids who come out of homeschool, public school, and Christian school. There are some r- uh, really sad situations, kids, uh, the, spiritually, that come out of homeschool, public school, and Christian school. I've met socially ept and socially inept kids who were homeschooled, public schooled, and private schooled. I've met brilliant kids from public schools and private schools and Christian schools, and I've met some not-so-brilliant kids from public schools and home schools and, and private schools. And so... Just be engaged as a parent. That's my actual position, that there's nothing inherently bad about sending your kid to a public school. But be parents that are so involved that you know what's being taught, and for that matter, you know what's being taught at your private school, uh, and and just be parents who are totally involved. Partner with your schools and your teachers uh, to be a, a really involved parent. I feel like I had one, oh yeah, I did have one more thought on this. Part, about, part of that default setting situation is... I think for some families, there is, there's a, they know there's a premium. Like there's gonna, we're gonna have to pay if we're gonna do the home, home homeschooling thing or Christian schooling thing. It's what we would prefer. It's what we would prefer do, but we can't afford it. And that's where I would want families to evaluate: how much do you, how much do you want it? How important do you think it is? If you think it really is important, then figure out what you can sacrifice. Figure out what your kids don't need, what the video game systems they don't need, the vacations they don't need, all the stuff that they don't need just because you think you got to compete with other parents who are getting their kids stuff. If, if you think Christian school is important for your particular child, right? So that's it. I, I liked a thing I should not have liked. My little sister called me out, and that's healthy, and I wanted to correct that, and I think it's, it's healthy to do. All right, here we go. Uh, next, Adam wrote in at CoreyTruxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruxShow at gmail.com. He says this. Hey, Corey, a, a recent post I saw on Facebook from you uh, about how Christians can't comfortably fit into either major political party made me wonder whether you are familiar with the AND campaign, and if so, what your opinion of them is, since they are founded on the same premise. So first, that's something I'm, uh, I'm right about that. There's not a way. If you're an American Christian, when you look at Republican Party and the Democratic Party, I can, I can see how you might shoehorn your way into identifying with one of them, but it should be a very uncomfortable shoe. Like, once you've gotten into it, you should be able to look around and see all the ways in which both major American parties are not, whoo, they are not ethical, they are corrupt, they are really bad institutions. The, 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 these major political parties, there should be no comfortable way to be part of one for the believer. Now, so he introduces me to the AND campaign. Uh, then Adam writes, I have been following them for a couple of years now and recently signed their 2020 statement. Their leadership is Democrat-leaning, but I find them extremely refreshing and challenging in a healthy way for someone who has tr- traditionally who ha- has traditionally leaned Republican. So I thought I might request this for a future show topic. Number one, what is your take on the AND campaign? Number two, 
What, if anything, in their 2020 platform do you disagree with and why? All right, so I got to talk about this, and I'm grateful. I have I heard about the AND campaign fairly recently. I think it's in the last month. I heard about it on another podcast called Love Thy Neighborhood. The AND campaign has this premise. It's specific for Christians, by the way. They are talking to Christians. The way they will you agree with it or not, let me just tell you what they say. They would say the Christian should have deep concern for moral issues, the the moral integrity of the culture, and the justice of the culture. Then and campaign would say, the Republican Party does a really good job of caring about the morals of the culture. So the way that they address abortion and sanctity of human life, marriage, families, that Republicans as part of their platform at least really value the idea of mom, dad, kids, family, the, the institution on which a country is built. And, and then they would say, but Democrats, they don't care about the moral foundations of the country, but they do a good job of caring about the justice issues. So they're really worried about those in poverty and the, the plight of the immigrant and the refugee. And they're really worried about uh, making sure that the criminal justice system isn't biased. They're worried more about racism, things like that. You can disagree with any parts of that that you want, but that's the and campaign. And so what they're saying is, for the American Christian... You're in a situation where you either have to care about morality, marriage, the family, uh, and abortion, or you've got to care about the plight of the immigrant and those in poverty, and you have to do one or the other. And they're saying, no, we are the and campaign. We want Christians to feel that empowerment to be a part of a movement that says, no, I'm not doing either or. I'm going to care about both things. I'm going to care about both healthy political, excuse me, healthy cultural norms when it comes to morality, but I'm also going to care about those in poverty. So it's, a, it's I think the two terms they use are human dignity and justice. So uh, they, they, they want to support policies, not politicians and parties, but policies that advance both human dignity and human justice. Okay, so that was so part one of Adam's question is what is my take on the AND campaign? My original take is quite positively inclined because I'm inclined towards anything that points Christians towards this political system in this country not being our home. I'm inclined towards anything that would say to the Christians, stop being so concerned with the health of these parties. They don't care about you. And you should care about more gospel-related things. The, The guy who started it, or at least got... He was the catalyst. He's actually a Democrat from uh, North Carolina or Virginia. I can't remember which one. And he went to the 2016 or 8, whichever one, 2012. It was the 2012 Democratic National Convention in Charlotte. If you remember at the 2012 National Convention in Charlotte, that's when Democrats voted God out of their platform. So they voted all the, any kind of religious support out of the platform. And they also put in the platform their most radical pro-abortion language. Like the, the position officially of the Democratic Party is there is no restriction. You can kill a kid up until the moment they, they're about to come out of the womb. And so that, that troubled this guy because he was actually there running as a delegate, a delegate, and he identifies with most of the other stuff the Democratic Party supports when it comes to uh, welfare and 
uh, minimum wage or immigration reform. Like he's he's into a lot of that other stuff, and so this troubled him that they seemed so anti-religion because he, he he calls himself a Christian, and that they seemed so pro-abortion, and so that that's what started it all out. So I'm positively inclined, generally towards movements like this that challenge Christians to not play the political game. To, as we said last week, oh, and that's something Charlie, um, another listener. Uh, shared on Facebook that I, I loved. Um, he connected deeply to that point about Jesus saying to to the Pharisees, "I'm not picking a political side. You give the stuff that's the image. The image that's on that coin. Give it to the person who, um, to, who it belongs to Caesar because his image is on it. My image is on you, so you belong to me. So you do Jesus things, okay? And so I like movements that do that. And now there's the but. And so then Adam asks. What, if anything, in their 2020 platform do you disagree with and why? So they do have specific policy platforms. I, I love the ethic of the, of the movement because it's, it's calling Christians to get spit out of this terrible system. But then they have very specific policies. And I'm not on board with all of them. So I don't know if I could sign this statement, but I could call myself a supporter of the AND campaign. I love their ends. I love the ends that they're seeking. And I don't mind the means by which they're trying to get there. There's just some specific policy issues, and so here you go. For example, they talk about poverty and economic mobility. I obviously want a culture where there's a lot of economic mobility. We have one our, more than any culture in the world. People move up and down the wage ladder throughout their lives. It's, it's actually funny when the Democrats talk about the top 10% of wage earners. From year to year, those are very different people. The, the people who were one of the top 10% of wage earners, they don't typically stay there. They drop in the top 15%, the top 20%, and new ones come up because we have so much economic ability. And so in that realm, they talk about they want a, social, a strong social safety net like Medicaid, Social Security, nutrition aid for children and families, and a livable wage. Well, livable wage sounds like minimum wage, and minimum wage is a terrible policy. Social Security needs to be in place for every person who it's been promised to uh, over the age of over the age of forty-five or fifty. Social Security should never change for anybody, but it's bankrupting the country talking about nutrition aid for children and for families, I, I'm generally in favor of that. I, I think it's a terrible idea that it comes from the federal government, but it's administered that way. It would be better administered uh, from the local level. So, uh, yeah, I mean, gen- in general, I'm, I'm for Social Security being around for those that planned on it. I want the nutrition aid, but I don't want it from the federal level. And Medicaid is something which I wish we could, re- we could rethink altogether. Uh, then they have on on immigration reform. I think I'm 100% with them on immigration reform. I, I don't like that we have a, a bunch of folks who are here illegally in the country. I just uh, we we get to the practicality part, and I don't know what to do. I mean, I, what what do you do with them? And you can make it uncomfortable and try to make them leave on their own. You can. We're obviously not rounding everybody up. We're not doing that. I don't even know if that's right. That's if that's morally correct. So their their call is for is very general for a comprehensive immigration reform. I don't know all of what that means, but if comprehensive comprehensive 
immigration reform means making it easier to immigrate here naturally, like doing it legally. I definitely want to be on board for that. There was a couple that they I didn't like at all. Um, they're, they're really strong on abortion. I was totally with them on criminal justice system. We have a criminal justice system that um, we, we have the data to show that it treats people who are not white differently than those who are. Uh, so that's that's a problem. And then here's here was the two I didn't like. The AND campaign says that they are for expanding the child tax credit, earned income tax credit, and for, where is that, the paid family leave. I'm definitely not for government-mandated paid family leave. So I love maternity leave and paternity leave. I think businesses should do it. I think businesses who care about their employees should do that. It's a good thing. I don't want that regulation mandated for uh, for businesses. I would like to rethink the tax system altogether, but I'm not a big fan of the earned income tax credit. Uh, and the child tax credit, yeah, that, that might be fine. I don't, I don't oppose that too hard. Um, and then they, they talked a lot about, uh, they talk about voting, uh, that there should be no obstacles to voting. It sounds like they're talking about voter ID. I'm super pro voter ID. You need to have an ID to vote. And for some reason, it's been a thing on the left that if you want voter ID, it's because you're racist. I think that's racist. Why do you think people of color have trouble getting an ID? Do you think they're incompetent and can't get one? You're the racist here. Of course. There should be voter ID, and I think that's what they're talking about. Um, and then they also had uh, election reform. I- I'm generally fine with how we fund elections. Um, I- the thing I would want to change on elections, and it seems like they might be for this, is doing some of that ranked preference voting that you do in Maine. I would love for the primary system to change, but that's controlled by the parties. The parties control the primary system. That's not there's not a law you can pass there. Uh, and then the final thing they actually do they do pretty well on religious freedom. They, they support an act I'm not a huge fan of uh, the name of it right now. I cannot remember, but there's there's a there was a law that Democrats tried to pass earlier this year that. As far as I'm concerned, it makes being a Christian in public illegal. Like, you just can't run your Christian college. You can't run your business as a Christian. You just, you got to be an atheist in public. That's how it works. And it, it got to the House, and it won't get to the Senate. And then a compromise bill came out to try to protect religious liberty, but also protect these concerns that the left has on LGBT stuff. Uh, the, and campaign supports that bill. I don't think that bill uh, defends religious liberty well enough, so I don't support that. So, Adam, great email, man. I love this topic. I encourage everybody to go to andcampaign.org. Andcampaign.org. Learn more about them. I love their their goal. I think their goal is good. I can't sign on to all of the policies. But, again, I'm a, I'm a fan of what they're trying to do. When we come back, I would love to try to play for you. This is weird. Some Dolly Parton audio. from an, uh, She was talking religion, and I think it's very intriguing. So we'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. I don't have a ton of time before the sports segment, but I've got to, I've got to get got to get this content in, uh, to you because you, the listener, I'm a fan of you, and so I want you to be happy and have things that entertain you and that and that are important. So that's, that's another thing we do here. We are we are uh, excuse me. We are where entertaining meets educating, and so I want you to hear this. So first, I cannot recommend highly to you enough a new podcast. It's been out for about two months. It's called Dolly Parton's America. 
It was recommended to me. I was very skeptical because I could not possibly care less about Dolly Parton. That is not part of the American culture I have any interest in at all. But I, I trust the people who did the podcast. They're from WNYC and Radio Lab. Just gr- it was so good. It's only eight episodes. Some of them are some of them are forty five ish minutes. Some of them are shorter. You can just get right through it, binge listen, and it is so much fun. She has had quite the life. Just really quick example. She's been around, I guess, for 50 years. Her early albums featured a lot of songs about suicide. Uh, She's got some sad songs out there. But she was asked about religion, and I want to get her uh, response to you so that you can, uh, because I think it, it, it would equip us for other conversations. So here is a question and then Dolly Parton's response. What is the theology of Dolly Parton behind closed doors? Well, now, I am not, I'm a very spiritual person. I do not believe, I don't like talking politics and I don't like talking religion. And I certainly don't like trying to cram my religion down anybody's throat because I'm not that religious, but I am very spiritual. How do you practice your faith? I don't practice it. I live it. I think people try too hard. I talk to God like he is my best friend. I just go around talking to him. Sometimes I think if somebody saw me in my house, they'd think I was an absolute lunatic. I just talk to God, and sometimes if something great has happened, I just kind of raise my hand, give God a high five or a thumbs up. You know, it's like I just, I don't feel like I have to go to church to do it. I think church is in our hearts. It's wonderful for those that want to go to church. That's a wonderful thing, for, but I don't think I have to. And it's like I... I go when I want to or when I can or special occasions, but I live my faith. You know, if you try to shove that down people's throats or you come on goody-goody, that ain't going to work. You live by example. You teach by example. You learn by example, don't you think? And even the old cynics to say, oh, you know, there's no such thing as God. I said, well, that's your, that's your problem. Mm. I know there is for me. And that's what works for me. I would, it would scare me to death to think that there was nothing bigger and better than me, that there wasn't something out there that we could depend on. Of course, you look at it, well, well, if there is a God, why would he let this happen or that happen? Well, he's not letting things. Things happen. He gave us free will. We've the ones that screw up all the time. Bible says, let every man seek out his own salvation, and that means to save himself. Whatever it takes to save you, and if you can get to that place and you find your own peace, then you can do good for other people if you're at peace within yourself. All right, I play that very long clip for you for this reason. I'm basically positive that Dolly Parton's theology and her explanation of ultimate salvation— I'm basically sure that's the average Southerner. The average person who grew up in this area, the upstate of South Carolina, go up through North Carolina, eastern Tennessee, that thing that she just articulated, which isn't the Christian faith, but has the Jesus label on it and says some of the biblical things. She even says there, the Bible says, and she... She's wrong about that, by the way. The, that's not what that means. To, it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So examine your own salvation is what that verse means. And this, I'm, I'm not trying to say anything bad about Dolly Parton. I think this is what we need to recognize. There are a lot of people around us who think 
those things. I don't I don't need the church. I can do religion my own way. I don't want to cram it down people's throats. And even if you did, it won't work. And what the, I, I got to figure out what works for me and what saves me because what saves me is different than what saves you. A lot of people around us think it, and it will end in eternal damnation. I say this to you as the Christian listener to know that we've got work to do. We're, we aren't, especially if you're in this context, you're in the scenario where I am in the upstate of South Carolina. We're not f- trying to convert people o- into, a, into a faith that they're not familiar with. It's something new. It's a faith that they think they know everything about. But everything they know is wrong. And Dolly Parton is is such an iconic figure. That kind of messaging she just gave out there, that's not the real thing. The the real thing is not what saves you, will save someone different. The, The real thing, the message we have, is God is a good and just God, and because he's good and righteous, he cannot be in the presence of that which is not righteous, that which is not righteous. That's a problem for us because we are unrighteous from the moment we are born. And then there's Jesus who comes, lives the life we cannot live that God demands, satisfies God's demand for perfection and righteousness. He takes the punishment that we deserve, then God gets to be just. God gets his justice by punishing sin, and then God defeat Jesus defeats that sin on the cross and then defeats death in his resurrection. That's the only way of salvation. You know, let's get out there and talk about it because there's a lot of Dolly Partons out there. Sometimes these transitions are weird. But hey, let's preview the national championship game. Let's move on to sports. Are you ready? It should be a fun sports segment because we get to preview the ultimate, not the penultimate, it is the ultimate game of the college football season. That's the national championship. We're going to do that with Heath Powell, our sports correspondent. Hi there, sir. Hello. Uh, I don't think this one's going to be like the last one. The uh, the last national championship game was, was over pretty quick. Yeah, it was over pretty quick. I mean, you really don't know because if if you just take out the the name LSU this year, it sounds like they're talking about last year's game. Not a bad to point. me. It, that's what it sounds like. Sure. Um, I think obviously LSU's offense is clicking on more cylinders than Alabama's was. Yes. Uh, but Alabama's defense, quote unquote, was the best defense in college history last yep. year. Uh, and we saw what happened. So, I mean, you know, it, that's what I like about football. Any given game, anybody can win. doesn't matter what Vegas says or what the ESPN experts say. It just doesn't matter. You just get out there and you play the game. Yeah, the uh, the, de- the defense Alabama put on the field last year was obviously not the, the best ever. Clemson's obviously was the best. Yeah. But this LSU defense, I think it's appreciably worse than last year's Alabama's. Alabama oh, I defense. do too. I, I don't think they're and – the, And the bad thing is this – the LSU defense coming into the national championship is better than the LSU defense of the regular season. Let, let's the first half of the regular totally season. Totally agree. You know, we've talked about this before. This is a team that gave up 400 rushing yards to Ole Miss, 37 points. They gave up 38 Ooh. points to Vanderbilt. You know, it, yes, they have improved, but it's not it's not like they redid the whole roster and they have world killers on the defense. It's the same players. Yeah. Well, this is a a team to that to this end. Uh, the, not the last game of the season, uh, but that Alabama they gave up. 38 or something to Alabama during that game. Yeah. And I think I think Clemson's offense is quite a bit better than Alabama's. Yeah, so do I. Um, and so as I start thinking through this game, let's, before we start talking about the end of it, let's just go key matchups for a second. Um, 
is is to you the, the the key matchup of well I'll give you mine. Mine is the, this fact. I think Clemson's offensive line is good enough to eventually kind of bully their defensive line. Maybe not early in the game. No. Yep. I think Clemson's offensive line can really bully them eventually. Vanderbilt bullied their offensive line. That's Ole good. Miss bullied their offensive line. Yeah, they're not on the same level as Clemson's offensive line. Agreed. Now Clemson's offensive line could come out and lay an egg. I don't know. Sure. I'm not a fortune teller. All I'm saying is, you watch, you know, 13, 14 games through the year, you see the trends. Yeah. And the trends don't all of a sudden shift. They don't. They don't change. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest with you. I think the the best matchup of the game will be LSU secondary against Clemson's wide receiver core. Sure. But all that does is open up Etienne and Lawrence to run. Um, I also think what will be intriguing is Joe Burrow trying to figure out where Isaiah Simmons is. Yeah. To me, that's going to be the chess match. What do you do with Isaiah Simmons if you're LSU? Stay away as best you can. But you can't. <laughs> yeah, he plays multiple positions. <laughs> yeah. It's actually it's got to be the first thing you do when you get – I was about to say under center, but God knows they're not under center. They're not under center, yeah. When you get to the line of scrimmage, you look up and you find 11. Yep, you, you find, find 11. I mean, you do. And I thought Ohio State had a good game plan coming out of the gate they for did. Clemson with the up-tempo – uh, they they kind of keyed on some of Vendable's tendencies on the defense yep. to them look to the sideline, then they fast snap it when they're yep. not looking. I thought that was great. Me too. I thought, I thought that was good coaching, good preparation. Uh, but I don't also don't think anybody makes the kind of adjustments that the staff at Clemson does. I agree with your assessment that the uh, the fun matchup to watch is Clemson receivers mm-hmm. and LSU secondary because there's a bunch of NFL players. Right. But I'm I'm basically sure Ohio State secondary is better. Yeah. And they well, did, they say Ohio State's is the best in the country. I do that's think they what, are. Yeah, yeah, that's what they. That's what everybody says. And Ohio State's secondary actually did really well against Clemson's receivers. They, they did. great. But I think LSU's are great. But I think Clemson's about to see a defense on secondary specifically. That's it's not as good as the one they just saw. Right. And didn't they? Didn't they put up four hundred and something yards total? They did. In the in the festival. Yep. I just think I think Clemson's just gonna score so many points. I re, I didn't go into last year's national championship game thinking either team would score. 30. Right. Here's the only thing I thought about last year's game. I don't think Alabama's secondary can cover the receivers, and they obviously did not. And they couldn't. Now, 44-16, no way did anybody think no. that was going to happen. Did anybody think that Alabama wasn't going to score in the second half? Of course not. Right. Of course not. Uh, but that's just what happened. So, you know, it's fun to talk about, speculate. You know, we don't have much long to wait to, not, to see what actually happens. It's going to be a fun one. To get to this game. Um, I, did I, do I understand correctly that LSU's offensive line won some kind of award? They they're like the offensive line of the year. Yeah, they won the offensive line Heisman. I don't even know. Is it the Outland Trophy? Sure, it's one of the. Yeah, who cares? I don't even know if Google would know. They won, yeah, <laughs> that's an that's an abstract thing. Yeah, I even I, though Clemson's offensive line rates and scores better in every measurable category yes. than theirs did. So even so I went and watched some of those. You know, on YouTube you can get like games that are like twelve minutes long. Yeah, I love the long. condensed version. Yeah, those are fun. Me too. I went and watched some of those. And I was not actually all that overwhelmed with LSU's offensive line. No, you should go back and do the condensed version of the Vanderbilt game and the Ole Miss game. You need yep. to check those out. Yeah, it's, there, There's a time here for, for Clemson lately where the thing they used to not be able to say about dominating the line of scrimmage, Right. they seem to can do that now. Yeah. They didn't do that with Ohio State. I just, I'm trying to find a reason to not pick Clemson. I've been trying to find a way. Yeah. I can't find it. I just, well, I mean, Ohio State and Clemson were so evenly matched. Yes. Like, they, they're built the same. They're built inside out. And I think that's how you win national championships now. With the offenses that are going, just look at what Joe Burrow's been doing. You have to be built inside out. Uh, I do think intriguing, what will be intriguing is the, the Clemson secondary, not just Simmons, but the entire the safeties and the cornerbacks. 
against Joe Burr because his reads are so quick. Yes. He gets rid of the ball so quick, and he has a, he has a great ability to come up to the line and see where he's got the, the mismatch on coverage, and he's very good at that. I'm not taking anything away from Joe Burrow. No he's way. A, he's a great quarterback. Great season. Uh, but he also sat on the bench and didn't get in the game the last time Clemson played LSU three years ago. Uh, did they play three years ago? Yeah, I mean, it was 31 to nothing. Oh, Ohio State. Ohio oh, State, not LSU. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Joe Burrow was on that Ohio State team? Yeah, he was sitting on the bench. I had no idea. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. That's a cool little piece yeah. of trivia. I might use that in a trivia contest of some sort. That yeah. is, and now he gets to actually go face this team. So if Clemson wins this game, it'll be the second time he's lost to Clemson. So the, one of the things you said I wanted to highlight. If uh, the, if we're watching the, the wide receivers and the, the, the Clemson wide receivers and the LSU secondary, it's going to be fun. But that game is going to be won with Travis Etienne, I think, r- running the ball. Oh, and yeah. I don't think you can take away Trevor's – it's not as it's not a new ability. I think it's something that the staff has tapped into to use more as a weapon. Yes. Um. You know. I think out of the gate they kind of wanted to not let him get hurt any of this stuff. Yep. But going back to Taj Boyd, this is a vital part of the Clemson offense yes. to have the quarterback mobile and moving. Uh, now that we have one about a minute left, I there was something gnawing on my brain. I wanted to ask you going into this game. Does does the Clemson fandom? have a, a worry because Jeff Scott is leaving. Do you think that affects game planning and game calling because you're losing a coach? I don't think so. I don't either. I think they're totally dialed in. They're built for this. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody went into a panic when Chad Morris left. But Dabo's had a plan for years for one of the offensive coordinators to leave. Yeah. You know, I don't think. And plus, he's there anyway now. He's not distracted. He did everything, you know, on the on the off weeks before the playoffs started. He went to USF. He did all his, you know, recruiting and all that stuff. And he's back. and. Uh, I think it'll be a smooth transition. Plus, he loves Clemson. Yeah, I actually was watching the Ohio State game. Saw him on the sideline. Yeah, I was surprised. I thought he was gone, yeah. gone. No, but when it was announced, he took the job. He clearly said, "I'll be back f- through the run through the playoffs." That's a high quality thing. That's another testament to that culture. It's it's the culture. It's the it's the loyalty, the friendship. It's what they've built. Uh, I don't think anything in the country is close to what they're doing. I think there are other teams that are that are trying to do that with yes. the coaches, and I think the coaches are smart for doing that. It works, obviously. In 20 seconds, I'm telling you, I think it is uh, Clemson 49, LSU 45, something like that. Which, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going Clemson 48, LSU 35. Maybe that, That'll be fun. Maybe I can go to bed a little earlier. <laughs> HP, thanks for coming in and talking sports. I appreciate it. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. We will maybe be able to break down what happened in the National Championship game and get into a lot of other news. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.